Welcome to this episode of A Middle Market Growth Conversation, a podcast that looks at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Katie Mulligan, Associate Editor of Middle Market Growth Magazine. I'm here with Deborah Cohen, the magazine's Editor-in-Chief. Deb, who'd you talk to for the podcast this week? Katie, I talked to Mary Josephs. She is founder and CEO of Verit Advisors. They are a Chicago-based boutique investment bank specializing in employee stock ownership plans, better known as ESOPs. Historically, private equity has not been particularly warm to working with ESOP-run businesses for a variety of reasons. But changing demographic trends, such as aging baby boomers, is making this more of an opportunity for private equity. Thanks, Deb. It sounds like an interesting conversation. Let's get into the interview. Here is Deb speaking with Mary Josephs of Verit Advisors. Mary Josephs, thanks for joining this Middle Market Growth Conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Could you talk first before we get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in ESOPs, a little bit about your firm, Verit Advisors, and what you do? Sure, thanks. Verit Advisors is a boutique investment bank. I started the firm in 2009 for two purposes, three purposes. One, I thought I would try being an entrepreneur um, in addition to having counseled entrepreneurs for decades previously in my career. Secondly, I saw two gaps in middle market investment banking. Uh, The first was the propensity to drive towards a transaction as quickly as possible. So the compensation structure in most middle market investments banks is a bonus based on the revenue that you raised by December 31st. And that incense all sorts of behaviors. And then I think of the middle market business owner who often doesn't know what they want to do. And uh, might be, their objectives might be slightly misaligned from that. And perhaps just wants information and not to transact. So what we wanted to do was both bring the relationship approach to investment banking and to bring a philosophy where we were indifferent as to outcome. So Verit is populated with ESOP professionals, professionals with debt capital markets background that you would find in traditional investment banks, professionals with restructuring and M&A background that you would find in traditional investment banks and valuation service. And our clients have loved that. And the other white space that I saw was in the ESOP area. In the ESOP space, it was largely populated by valuation professionals who represent the ESOP trustee and ERISA attorneys. And conspicuous in their absence were professionals who had corporate finance background and understand how this ESOP behaves as a shareholder. And I believe personally that your uh, capital strategy should align with your business strategy. And ESOP companies, as an overgeneralization, were not thinking about um, the ESOP as a shareholder, more so just as a benefit plan. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and when we think, I mean, when you talk about that sort of like the bad rap yeah. that ESOPs historically got like companies like United um, United Airlines they have Tribune. garnered Tribune company mm-hmm. Tronc now have garnered um, negative uh, publicity as a result of that very Correct. fact 
correct, not getting in front of it. So what kinds of companies um, are ripe for an ESOP? What is, is there like a typical company that is um, a perfect ESOP candidate? Absolutely, there is. Uh, number one, it's not the company that has the super um, interesting, inflated, hot public market price. Uh, because an ESOP's a financial buyer. So it is going to basically look at your discounted cash flow, your future earnings, and it will look at public markets and comparable transactions, but it will never pay a strategic premium. It doesn't bring any synergies to the table. So companies uh, that really are unique from a valuation perspective to the positive are not good ESOP candidates. Business owners whose primary objective is to maximize cash at close, not a good ESOP Mm -hmm. uh, situation. While I believe an ESOP pays fair market value, it will not give you as much cash at close. Let's just say only half your cash at close. So the attractive ESOP candidate is the company that has comfort with a longer pathway to liquidity and and maybe this part's first, and very importantly, likes the idea of creating a legacy of the people who helped build the business having an opportunity to create wealth in their retirement accounts. And if that's attractive, uh, the math will work out. Are there typical industries that, I mean, listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking that manufacturing is probably a very good candidate. Mm -hmm. Are there others? The research, Ernst & Young did a study a few years ago out of their big statistical think tank. Um, The largest concentration, three largest concentration of ESOPs are industrials. The second would be architecture, construction, and engineering. Interesting. And the third being business services. So going up, going back up in reverse order, business services, engineering, and architecture firms, you think of those all as professional service firms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're assets. We call, in my old banking days, we called them elevator assets. <laughs> they go up and down and leave every day. So to align your capitalization or your incentives with your assets, Um, has proven to be extraordinarily successful. In key industrial companies, um, the employee benefit tends to lean more culturally. S&C Electric Company here Mm -hmm. in the northwest, northeast side of the city is the second largest... My old neighborhood. (laughs) ...manufacturing (laughs) company in the city. And uh, Conrad really wanted the company to stay private. Uh, So upon his death... Uh, the um, daughters were excited about selling that property <laughs> and uh, and doing a development. Mm-hmm. And because of the founders' wishes, uh, they were able to create a fair opportunity for an ESOP to buy out the daughters. Wow. So they're the 100% employee-owned and the second largest manufacturing company in the city of Chicago. That's surprising. I mean... And they're just, you kind of, you see the sign when you're up there and you don't really know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what what is going on there? I, I guess a lot of ESOP companies are sort of like under the radar companies. Maybe you right. could tick off a few. Scott um, Forge Company up in Spring Grove, Illinois, 
has been an ESOP for over 25 years, and you have forging operators retiring with over a million dollars in their retirement account. Wow. Up at, in the Northeast, Winco Foods has a cashier in her 40s at one of their stores in Oregon. She's got over a million dollars of company stock in her retirement account. Uh, National Van Lines, right up Roosevelt. We just drove, drive straight west. Uh, moving Memories. Uh, Maureen Beal sold to an ESOP recently because uh, she was gen- fourth generation and she just couldn't imagine a better legacy for the the story and the business that her grandfather built. So in this environment um, where a lot of industrial companies, manufacturing companies, are really hard-pressed to find um, skilled workers and to retain them for the long term, it seems like that would be a very nice incentive to have um, to to draw workers in, train them, and and then retain them for the long haul. Absolutely. Attracting and retaining talent and a buzzword right now is engagement. I've been interviewed and I believe in Brunswick's next quarterly magazine, they're going to have an article on ESOPs around employee engagement theme for that quarter's mm-hmm. magazine. Uh, I talked to a multi-billion dollar tier one auto supplier uh, manufacturer um, down in southern Illinois, and the director of human resources said to me, Mary, we're paying people, I don't know, let's call it $20 an hour. Uh, it's barely a living wage to save for retirement, and they're currently non-unionized. Well, that was my next question. I, I In the back of my head, I'm thinking, are a lot of these companies, do, do the ESOPs and the union representation tend to go hand in hand, typically? Some companies think an advantage of an ESOP is it is an anti-union initiative because you're providing an employee benefit plan. Companies that have union workers, and there's a lot, obviously the construction companies and others, and, and industrials, have a choice. Uh, you can exclude union workers. That's a permitted exclusion in the tax code for the broad-based benefit plan. Or you can uh, negotiate with the union to include their employees in the ESOP. Honestly, it takes a focused and dedicated initiative on the part of the business leadership to walk through all the hassles and hurdles to include the unions, has been my experience. Okay. Well, let's talk about what you're seeing right now in the market. Um, before we started, you were talking about just um, the number of deals you're working on and just how right. frenetic the pace is right now in the market. So, so expand on that. 2017 has been a super interesting year to me. Um, on December 31st, 2017, I will be able to say that I, that we, Verit, me personally, were involved in the fewest number of new ESOP transactions in my career. So why is that? Uh, starting about a year ago, when there's uncertainty as to who would win the presidential race, uh, middle market privately held business owners somewhat froze in uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And then with the Trump administration, there was optimism on 
on a positive effect, the Trump bump in the in the market and on tax reform. So if I'm a pi- privately held business, how do I compare? I mean, an ESOP compared to what? Maybe I'm not. Maybe taxes are going to go down to fifteen percent, and the mm. some of the substantial incentives of an ESOP involve more favorable tax treatment for the business owner and the company. Well, compared to like 50% when you're in California, 15% is meaningful and might affect the difference. Right. So uh, the first six months of the year, I'd say even almost into and through into July, privately held business owners were not proactively talking about their alternatives. It was a mystery to me given if you're going to sell your company within the next three to five years, you know, we have an unprecedented run-up in the market. We have flush with capital. It's a really good time uh, to sell your business. So I couldn't understand it, but it was reflected in the M&A numbers, or the, mm-hmm. in the um, overall uh, M&A activity. Where we've had a lot of work, and 2017 has been very busy, is working with um, private equity exit to an ESOP, selling ESOP companies, and bringing in growth capital to existing ESOP companies. I mean, just because you're employee-owned, you have the same challenges a family business has on how do I continue to grow and capitalize myself. Is that unusual, the fact that private equity is partnering with ESOPs more? I know you've written recently, you wrote about Forbes, and you talked about the private equity um, ESOP hybrid. Um, Private equity has historically had a, a somewhat cautious relationship with ESOPs for some of the pro-employee um, characteristics mm-hmm. that you ticked off earlier in mm-hmm. the conversation. Where are things headed with that relationship right now? There are a growing number of firms with experience, focus, and even exclusive dedication to being a co-investor with an ESOP. Why? Because there's such an oversupply of capital for too few deals, they find it as a distinctive strategy to co-invest with an ESOP. So it used to be maybe one fund knew how to, that I could think of nationally knew how to do it, and now there's a dozen and that have a, a deep fluency and experience in co-investing with with ESOPs. How do ESOPs um, traditionally raise um, more capital if they need to expand or um, do anything that um, that a public company would do if they were going to issue more shares, et cetera, because they want to gear up and build additional plants or do a geographic expansion or whatever? How, how do they this, is, this question is what's driving the um, super interesting ESOP activity right now. So you're a CEO or the leadership team setting a strategy, and you need uh, capital for growth. You need capital to fund repurchase obligation. You've got employees leaving, and you need whatever balance sheet cushion is commensurate for your industry and your culture and capability. And sometimes a board will look at this and ask a question like, how much risk do you put on a company that is owned by a retirement plan? So say the company, when they started the ESOP, was worth a dollar, equity value is now worth $350 million, and I need to make a transformative acquisition, 
do I really bet the house? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I were a private equity firm, it would be okay if I was wrong. I would make my return from the other diversified portfolio investments, but I'm a retirement plan. So to answer your question, now that I sort of set up how they're thinking, um, they either sell the business, they bring in this mezzanine hybrid capital, or one that I like is uh, they, they bring in private equity that will do two things, bring in growth capital and put some cash into the ESOP so you diversify the plan participants that now instead of just stock, I have stock and cash, so I've mitigated my risk and I've got growth capital to go on and take the risk. So I've got a partner sharing in the risk taking. And I think those are really elegant uh, hybrids to look at for ESOP companies. And you're seeing more of those? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about a few examples? Sure. Um, Kahi Foods here in uh, Chicago was buying a company twice its size called Tree of Life. And they brought in prudential capital uh, to, they, they took out senior financing, but then they brought in prudential capital to provide some equity financing. And so the ESOP, instead of owning 100%, owns 70% of the company or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another company whose name I can't say, uh, <laughs> the family owned 20% and the ESOP owned 70%. And we brought in private equity. And afterward, the private equity owned 40%. The family had 10 And um, actually, the private equity plus the family had control. And the ESOP got shrunk to... 30%. Mm, okay. So we put some cash in the ESOP and uh, created a business plan that would enable the remaining stock in the ESOP to grow and the family to continue to have a stake in the game and then a, a professional capital provider to add all the good things that private equity brings to the table in terms of leadership connections, you know, mm-hmm. strategic planning. Mm-hmm. Um, another big trend right now is the um, the aging of the baby boomers, and that probably creates um, two opportunities, I guess, or not opportunities, but um, trends that you may be seeing with respect to ESOPs, the workers themselves mm-hmm. exiting, mm-hmm. and the, the owners um, of these family-owned businesses, or the majority family-owned businesses, getting ready to transition. So... What are, you, what are you seeing there? What are, what are the predominant trends that are a result of the aging population? Sure. On the worker shortage, I think we're just at the front end of getting that into the public conversa- conversation. And that's why we're seeing employee engagement. Uh, that's why we're seeing better articulation of, of benefit, overall benefit communication and management for the workforce. I My experience and my my. Uh, clientele is traditionally privately held businesses, whether ESOP or non-ESOP owned. Um, they've got their head in the sand about the projected worker shortfall. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an overgeneralization. Mm-hmm. There's some that are on top of it. On the business owner, it's such a mystery to me, going back to like the first half of this year, knowing the number of privately held businesses that do not have kids coming in and have not taken steps to think about their plan. And 
I'm not talking ESOP versus non-ESOP. I'm talking about like their will and their estate plan. Wow. And uh, I've written a couple of blogs on Forbes because as proud I, uh, as I am of what we do at Verit, a good investment banker is going to get you, I don't know, one, two turns more, uh, go wild, three, than what you would get if you didn't use somebody, a sales side advisor. Mm-hmm. And if you just put yourself out on the market. Yeah, and and aggressively negotiate mm-hmm. and all those things that good investment bankers do. A good estate plan <laughs> is going to double your your impact of what you have with mm-hmm. your assets in charitable contributions, contributions to your but your net after tax estate legacy can be exponentially larger mm-hmm. with a good estate planning and people um, really shy away from seeking that counsel and, advi- and advice until like the week before closing a deal. Is it the fear of their own mortality? Is that what it is? Fear of that? Um, I was talking to the New York Times is doing a research on women and wealth. So it's mm-hmm. just talking. Uh, fear that they don't understand it. It is really complicated. When mm-hmm. my husband and I did ours, and I'm, I'm kind of a cousin to what this whole thing is because I work with business owners who are transitioning. And when we were doing our estate plan, I found it really complicated. Mm-hmm. So it, it is tedious, and there's a lot of words you don't normally use. Like, who wants to do a defected guarantor and trust, <laughs> right? Um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so... I mean, defective just doesn't sound right, right. but it's really good for estate planning purposes. Um, so it's fear of not understanding it. It's finding a trusted advisor that isn't just looking for fees and is actually going to listen and look out for your best interest. Um, it, it's a real uh, shortfall in the overall delivery of services to privately held businesses. But I'm not going back to get my law degree. <laughs> you have enough degrees. Um, what are just stepping back and looking at at ESOP uh, businesses versus non-ESOP? What are some of the things that ESOP-owned businesses do really well mm-hmm. compared to other businesses? And what are some of the, the shortfalls that you've you've worked on so many of these deals over the yeah. years? There's a recent study that came out. You can get it on esca.us. E S C A employee-owned S-Corps of America. And uh, millennial workforce are exponentially happier in an in a employee-owned company than a non-employee-owned company. They're doing great with millennials. I thought that was statistically interesting. Overall job satisfaction, employee engagement. ESOP-owned companies do really well with culture and engagement. And coming back to what you were talking about earlier, which is attracting and retaining the best talent that culture and engagement is such a competitive advantage so for example uh, boy an industry that has incredible headwinds right now let's talk about retail grocery oh yeah and there is a lot of employee ownership in the grocery space Uh, harps down in springdale arkansas 100% employee owned right across the street from walmart for their entire Mm -hmm. existence uh, and, and they're hanging in there? Not hanging in there. They're thriving. Wow. So we're working with a company up in Northern California. Um, and there's another one down in Southeast mm-hmm. Texas right now. 
um, that are able to, because they're independent, um, be able to offer a level of service uh, to the communities that they're in and a level of relationship and rapport and be able to have margins that far exceed the compression that you're seeing across the industry. And it's that culture mm-hmm. that enables you to attract and retain a cashier. And then the cashier know starts to know everybody in the community, and so the people keep shopping there. Right. right. And then they're able to modify their format in perhaps a Latino community versus an African-American community versus an Asian community. And with a nimbleness and thoughtfulness that large retailers find it hard to do. So the empl- That's because of the personal stake that the employee has in terms of feeling like with everything customer facing that this is my company? It comes down to that? You got it. So you see lower turnover and in retail less shrink. That's a big mm-hmm. expense. Um, shrink being theft. Right. Employee okay. theft disappears. Uh, and more engagement. Okay. What about on the the downside are there any what what would you say are the capital the drawbacks? capital capital uh, so we are working with a company that already has a lot of debt say they're asset-based lending so asset-based lending if you've got the assets you can borrow at any multiple right just looking at fixed charge coverage ratios um, so an ESOP isn't either in an inception a good alternative for companies that already are very capital intensive or debt laden. And then as they grow, if they continue to have a lot of debt, they get squeezed with the, I call it hands in the cookie jar, but Mm -hmm. your cookie jar is your free cash flow. And you need to pay off your debt, you need to pay off retiring employees and you might have management incentives or other stock or, or um, equity programs that have liquidity calls. And the combination of this, uh, the net result is the company doesn't have enough capital for growth. And that's a problem, right? right? Uh, I'm working with, uh, working with a company um, that their product is sold uh, in retailers, in malls. There's been a little bit of disruption in that industry. So, you know, they're employee-owned and they're just asking the question, you know, do I have enough free cash flow to continue to grow in this incredibly uncertain environment with move to nimble moves to e-commerce? Can they pivot to e-commerce? Is that what they're trying to do? They they have pivoted. Okay. But the, um, as in the retailer space... Uh, product development life cycle has exponentially increased relative to what it was years ago. And so when they did the ESOP, they had a few competitors. Now the competitor, the page, the white page where you put all the logos who are their competitors, um, they have dozens of competitors or perceived competitors. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes uh, you just need to be a bigger company or have the resources of a bigger company right. to be able to weather some storms or have the t- 
talent or scale to stay to stay competitive. I see. Let me ask you lastly, what are what do you think are the most interesting trends that you'll be watching um, going into 2018 with respect to ESOPs? Two, private equity and M&A. ESOP companies, let's start with M&A. ESOP companies often became an ESOP because the business owner liked the value proposition. And they psychologically thought of it as a path to liquidity, but they have not in the intervening time frame thought about transitioning leadership. So now 10, 15, 20 years later, the founder really wants to exit or needs to exit. And the company hasn't done a good job of building a bench and leadership transition. Or, like I mentioned in the previous, there's just macroeconomic changes in the industry that require a need for more capital or diversification or other. So particularly successful ESOP companies are saying, well, maybe from a fiduciary perspective, it's better to give employees now you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in their retirement account versus still holding company stock. Are we going to see more ESOP private equity um, partnerships going forward? ESOP private equity. I still believe the intersection is threefold, where PE exits to ESOPs. ESOPs sell to private equity, and private equity provides growth capital. I've talked a little bit about the second two. Let me talk about private equity exiting to an ESOP. We completed um, a transaction recently where the private equity firm Long Point Capital, uh, and this is their this isn't the first time they've done this. It might be the third or fourth, out of New York, exited their portfolio investment to an ESOP, and they have LPs that need a fair price. Private equity thinks they're not going to get a fair price if they sell to an ESOP. Hmm. Now, admitted, admittedly, this was an architectural firm with my elevator assets. Yeah. So. The fair price is the price that all the architects would agree to and stay on and continue to, to generate the revenue. But it was a very successful transaction where Long Point uh, felt that they had done a fiduciarily appropriate job for their investors, their LPs, and the individual architects uh, also felt that they had an opportunity to continue to grow the business and um, create wealth for themselves. Thanks for listening to this Middle Market Growth Conversation. Check back in two weeks for the next episode. And in the meantime, visit middlemarketgrowth.org for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and trends in middle market M&A.